Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Cameron. Oh, shit. Oh, Cameron? Oh, oh heck. Oh, oh darn. What, what's going on? Oh, Michael, I'm out in this pile of car parts trying to find the perfect part for my beloved car, Jefferson. <laughs> That's a choice of a name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, I, it was given to me. I didn't. I didn't. You thought I just made that up? Oh, oh! No reason? It was a condition of the sale that you had to call the car Jefferson. Yeah, I pulled up and some sort of uh, oh, evil old man. I guess is the way you might call him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he yeah, said, I've seen those around. Yeah, uh, he said, here is a Ford Pinto. Uh, it is beloved by many, and his name is Jefferson, and you uh, need to uh, repair it. And I fell in love, of course, like the way you do. And now I'm mm-hmm. here in the, this big old uh, pile of car parts trying to find the right one to add to uh, the car. Well, that really that really frustrates me. So it's time for me to reminisce about how much gas cost 20 years ago, which I know, mm-hmm. even though I'm can, only 17. Can you hold this hose for me real quick? Yeah, yeah, sure. Can you hold it up to your face? OK, yeah. Huh. Hey, and whipped cream coming right out of that thing. Well, this is all a prank. Oh, OK. Uh, did did yep. the car do this? Well, that's the magic of Jefferson. <laughs> That's the tagline on the movie poster. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, today we're talking about Jefferson. I mean, Christine. Christine. We're talking about Christine. Oh. The beautiful lady, Christine. What kind of car is Christine? I uh, bet you know this off the dome. A 1958 Plymouth Fury. I knew it. I just read this book. It's 700 pages long. I mm-hmm. could. I would never be able to pull that. In a million years. <laughs> Would not even be able to get close to it, but uh, uh, she's beautiful. She's boisterous. She does murders. She's Christine. That's Christine. It's Christine. Now, if you're working on a, uh, you know, we say this basically every episode, but uh, when I was watching the film, for Christine, directed by John Carpenter, which we will talk about in our bonus episode. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch. Back us over there to get access to our bonus episodes where we talk about the movies of Stephen King. And of course, for this month, we are talking about the film for Christine. But we were watching that and uh, I was with my, of course, my brave wife that people who listen to that bonus episode know a lot about her opinions. And I said, I just I wish that we could remake Christine. That Michael and I could like write a script. <laughs> and I know that we say that for many of these episodes because I think we are built to do it. Yeah. I think we would be. But Christine really hit me hard where I was like, 
I, I wish that we had the opportunity to to take a swing at this thing because uh, I you know what I'm gonna say it I think that this is a great story mm-hmm. in a terrible novel. One thousand percent is is how I would agree with you. That is the the amount that I am agreeing. Uh, luckily, there is a remake currently in the works, of course, with Bloomhouse. Uh, Brian Fuller is apparently writing the script. <sighs> Look, I saw. Uh, mm, Look, I get it. Brian Fuller's very talented. I want Brian Fuller to get back working on on Hannibal. Mm -hmm. Stick to what you're good at, Brian Fuller. Weird psychosexual relationships between therapists and patients. Okay, that's that. Can you do that into a car? Okay, hold on. Actually, I'm very excited to for the car to begin like narrating to be like. Why are you so sad, Ani? <laughs> I was going to say, like, the thing is, like, I can see kind of what Brian Fuller would do with this setup. <laughs> yes. It wouldn't be this really this kind of story at all, but it could be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Fine. Fine. I guess I'll pass on this opportunity if Brian <laughs> Fuller really wants to do it, but I'm not happy about it. <laughs> I'll allow it. Oh, my God. Mads Mikkelsen is the car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why should the tires touch the open road <laughs> if they were not meant to hunt? <laughs> Is not the highway the forest of the modern day? <laughs> that's my that's my Mads Mickelson, yeah. uh, by the way. It's really good. I've been working on that one. It is pretty good. We have like, I don't know, Tom Holland is Arnie, just kind of like gawping, <laughs> like cut to him, like staring at the car. No, 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 no. We got to flip it. Uh, Zendaya. Is, oh, is oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Zendaya is Arnie. Zendaya is Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, oh, what? It actually, Zendaya is Arnie. Matt Mickelson's Christine. It actually does. <laughs> it does scan, which is pretty good. Oh, fantastic. I'll take that job, I guess. I guess if there's a theme song to be written, I'll, I'll do that one. <laughs> I'll let Brian Fuller hit the script. Okay, we are we are doing a classic range touch. If you haven't listened to our other shows, such as Game Study Study Buddies or Too Much Future or even um, Mages and Murder Dads, a show that you don't co-host, Michael. Mm -hmm. uh, when we don't want to talk about the thing we're talking about, We'll do a big bit, you know, because we just, we love a good bit. It really doesn't have anything to do with, with liking it or not, but we'll lean into that bit. And we're in Bit City right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think we have a lot to talk about in this book. I think that this is a fascinating, you know, kind of three different mindsets, right? Like, one, it's a not a good novel, just mm -hmm. straight up. It is not, an, it is a novel that... Um, I struggled a bit to get through, and, uh, you know, you can talk about this. I, I think you will talk about this in just a second, but this is like the first brick wall you've run into. I think you you were saying you were, like, really struggling to get through this. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a terror, just a novel that is not good. Mm -hmm. Great story. You know, the Wikipedia summary on this, probably amazing, because <laughs> great ideas in it. But then there's kind of the third perspective, the thing that, you know, we do here on Just King Things, where we read all the works of Stephen King in publication order. Uh, this is a fascinating novel in the Stephen King trajectory. Like, it is uh, 
I, I, I have a lot to say about it when we get there because this is like the real shit to me. This is like, this is what the show pays off in is like having something interesting to say about Christine. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but, but we'll get there in time, but, uh, t- tell me about your struggles reading this novel. Yeah. Uh, so the way that I would describe this novel and the way that I put it in the notes is that this is a high concept Turkey, meaning we've talked about high concept stories before. Um, there are things that King is, is really good at, especially kind of early career King. And in many ways, this feels like a callback to those early three, four novels, uh, you know, vampires invade small town USA, uh, family trapped over winter in haunted hotel, uh, you know, a very sort of like clean, clear concept. You can immediately see kind of the dramatic hook to it. So here we have, uh, you know, teen buys haunted car, which begins to take over his life. Uh, and I should say like awkward teen, right? That's really part of it. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the awkward teen buys a haunted car that he restores and then it takes over his life as he, you know, concomitantly becomes cooler or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, as the first King novel where Thanksgiving plays a major plot point then, um, <laughs> and also this is being released, I think, in, in November. So uh, happy American Thanksgiving to everyone in in our reader listenership, whatever the hell. Anyhow, I'm I'm trying to I'm, you can feel me trying to pull away from the novel as I'm speaking about it. <laughs> it, it, it it's very funny that, that your own brain is christening you. It's uh-huh. trying to, to detour you away from the things you're supposed to do uh, into the bad place, which is just infinite regression of bits until we <laughs> until we never have to think about it again. Uh, so the, the the novel is a turkey in the sense that it is huge. And there's a lot of it, and I don't know what I'm going to do with all of it, and not all of it needs to be here. Uh, This is like uh, just – you said it – I told you it was like hitting a brick wall. I think this is the first time in doing this show you have ever finished the book before me. Oh, yes, and like by a week or something. Yeah. Like way, way ahead of you. Normally I am weeks behind you, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes I'm finishing the book a couple of days before we record and you're like done, you know, a couple of weeks ahead and you've already done a bunch of research and stuff. Uh, yeah, I think I was like, oh, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And you were way like 200 pages back from me at some point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Michael's having problems with this one. <laughs> <laughs> this is out of, out of, out of the norm, the norm. And the thing is, it's not like I was, uh, having trouble reading it really like I was sitting down and I was reading a couple of chapters and I guess I just wasn't working through it as quickly as I normally do but the thing about this book really is that there are pages and pages and pages of shit that does not matter at all like in terms of what that high concept is about the the kid with the haunted car that is a small percentage of the overall amount of detail about things that we get in this novel we learn so much about like the geography of this fictional pittsburgh suburb for instance Mm -hmm. uh we learn so much about kind of like the social lives of these teenagers who then we stop really caring about their social lives halfway through because we're just going to focus on on like three or four of them uh 
all this stuff about like the drama with everyone's respective families, like all these parents show up, all the parents have kind of their own little like histories that get pulled into things. Uh, th there's a real uh, like embracing of the like bourgeois novel details kind of going on here where we're, we're just mm -hmm. kind of like getting the, the social reality of these characters and sort of the problem is, yes. yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Arnie's mother, who we'll talk about, I'm sure again, but Arnie's mother is a department chair at a university and we get probably over the course of this book, 20 pages dedicated to her feelings about that. Yeah. And the, like, it's so far, it's so tertiary to anything going on in the novel um, that, that it's pretty bewildering to see it show up. Yeah, it, it, it's it's just it's wild. It's it's like uh, I mean, we've said at it, on the show before, at some point, Stephen King becomes uneditable. One of the like flashpoints that we pointed out for that would have been Dan's Macabre, which had just like a, a pure stream of consciousness rant basically by the end. Uh, and this is kind of the first novel, I think, where you're seeing that happen, where I think any editor who had this cross their desk should have been like, hey, wait a minute. Why do we have all this stuff? You, you said your copy is 700 pages. Yeah, something like that. It's uh, let me look here. 640. So a little bit shorter that 644 looks mm. like. And is it a normal size paperback? Yeah, like like yeah. a tra uh, uh, not a pocket paperback, but like a paperback paperback. Mm -hmm. All right. So one of the things that I read specifically about the film and how that got made is that the producer, I think, got the novel in manuscript and it was something like 650 pages. Uh, my copy is only about 500. It's a normal um, uh, like pocket signet paperback, but the print is pretty small. I mm. say all this as a description uh, to tell you that this book is either slightly shorter than or possibly slightly longer than Salem's Lot. <sighs> I mean, that this is another benefit of the show is like when you think about the legwork that's required to make Salem's Lot work as a novel, you know, like all the like community history development and, you know, the, the kind of, uh, narrative threading of several different characters and the way that that works versus the absolute like bludgeon that is Christine. You can really feel the wasted pages here. Mm -hmm. Like, because Christine is, it is two POV characters, right? I mean, occasionally we float out into some other people, but really two POV characters, uh, thinking about each other over and, and thinking about a car over 600 pages. Mm -hmm. uh, like it just does not I, I don't know there's something pretty wild to me thinking about that that this is the same length as a Salem's Lot while accomplishing like the scope and scale of maybe one eighth of Salem's Lot mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah that's that's pretty wild to me yeah the narrative outline here begs for something closer to Carrie which ironically I think in the first episode I remember describing as like a little hot rod of a novel uh mm -hmm. And so, you know, ironically, this this book could be just called Wheel Spinning. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good opportunity for you to to do the five sentence summary. So so in case people are not familiar with the whole novel, uh, they can get into it. And then we can talk about like 
all the other weirdness here, not just plotty mm-hmm. weirdness, which strangely enough, there's not that much. I don't think we have a huge amount to say about the plot of this novel, but I think we both have a lot to say about the structure of this thing and how uh-huh. it works and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And I think it's you this month, right? Yep. All right. So let's summarize this. <clears throat> Arnie Cunningham and Dennis Gilder are teenage best friends in the late 70s. Arnie, a nerd, makes improvements in his life and earns the attention of a pretty new girl in school named Lee Cabot. Dennis, a football jock, can't believe this, and his disbelief is rewarded when Lee tells him that Arnie is turning evil and then she and Dennis fall in love. This makes Arnie very angry and all of these relationships end up being destroyed. Arnie's car is also haunted by a 1950s asshole and kills some school bullies, uh, but that's sort of beside the point of a lot of other stuff. That's it. That's that's Christine. Mm-hmm. I love this haunted car. <laughs> I just I I gotta say that up front. I enjoy the idea of a haunted car. I don't know. Does that does that make me uh like horror basic, Michael? I don't think so. I think I think there's like eh, there's mileage in the idea of a haunted car still. <laughs> it's just cool, right? So we, we get this backstory over the course of uh of the whole novel, right? We get this dude what what's his first name? Ro- is it Roland Roly? Yeah, Roland LeBay. Roland LeBay. Uh it it used to be his car. And he, uh, his daughter dies in the car. Um, and we learn later that he probably sacrificed his daughter in the car. She was choking on a hamburger. What a 1950s ass way to die, by mm-hmm. the way. Uh, but uh, choking on a hamburger. And uh, he like places her in the car as she dies. He's like sacrificing her to Christine. And then uh, his wife dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, or uh, she gets, she commits suicide, right? Yeah. In Christine. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Christine's eating more. And maybe, maybe she really did, and maybe he put her in there. Ooh. And then he uh, sells Christine to Arnie for dot, 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 question mark reasons. It's actually very unclear why that happens. Uh, it, in fact, makes no sense if he is dedicated so heavily to this car. But, uh, and then Christine just starts doing murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like running around on her own at night, you know, running people down with no one inside of her. Uh, she's her odometer's counting down all the time, so she's like constantly repairing herself, which is rad. Um, it's it's cool to me. I like the idea of a car that murders people. Yeah, of its own volition. Yeah. No, I think uh, you are correct, and I well, we'll talk about this on the bonus episode, but I think it's a smart move for Carpenter's film to lean into that angle as opposed to what the novel does, which is present the ideas that you've just uh, given us and then sort of muddle them with the fact that LeBay himself is also a ghost in the car who shows up sometimes and also sometimes doesn't, but is also clearly like possessing Arnie from beyond the grave. Like as, as uh, Christine's hold grows on Arnie, Arnie grows more and more like LeBay, like Dennis uh, breaks his leg at a certain point and has 
people signing the cast and he has Arnie sign it twice uh, and he's very sneaky because he has it sign him in what sign it in one place and then sign it in another and you can so he can compare the signatures and he sees that Arnie's signature has changed so all this stuff is happening and then Christine is also kind of like collecting souls by the end like people that she's killed are showing up as ghosts in the car uh and so it's uh, then the, the the other thing, right, is that it, it would be it would be one thing if that was just kind of like, OK, LeBay and Christine. But then we learn all of this history about George LeBay uh, or not Roland LeBay from his brother, George LeBay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, and George tells us all this stuff about how, like, yeah, my brother was the biggest asshole in the world like the most hateful son of a bitch you could have ever imagined like assaulted both me and my sister when we were children like look i still have the scar on my arm uh and he lived LeBay lived his entire life just brimming with like causeless and objectless resentment uh for everything around him including his own family except for this car which he loved for whatever reason uh and then also like we we find out that uh when Roland LeBay was a baby he was he was a fine little baby but then one day he just became really mean and his th- their mother always said that he was her changeling right which is like you know the the, the fairy lore that uh fairies will steal a baby and replace it with like an evil counterfeit copy of a baby so mm-hmm. all this ends up like tethering back to some guy in in the 50s was such an asshole for some reason like and again like there's not a specific program to his hatred like he just hates things uh he was such an asshole that his car came to life well so that is that is the fascinating thing about it right because that is like the best explanation that we get but also he falls illogically in love with Christine in the same way that Arnie does. So, yes. like, you know, the way that the way that the story kind of progresses, right, is like Dennis and Arnie, they're good friends. Jock and nerd. Jock's kind of dragging the nerd through high school, you know, to uh, keep him from getting beat up because it's the 70s. And uh, they're driving by one day in Dennis's like, you know, little pseudo hot rod thing he's got going on. And Arnie just sees the car and becomes like obsessed with it. You know, it, it's this kind of like. You know, you, 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 it's pure suspension of disbelief on the part of the reader. You just have to accept that this is true. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about it a bit. Uh, John Carpenter has things to say about that in the commentary for, <laughs> for the film. Um, uh, the commentary for the film, just to give people a little bit of a preview, not really as full of information as I would like, but um, is in a uh, masterclass of John Carpenter analyzing his own film, which mm. is fascinating to talk about. But we'll talk about that on the bonus episode. But so that happens, you know, and we get this kind of like, you know, almost um, like wasp in the orchid relationship here, right? Where it's just mm-hmm. like Arnie is unbelievably attracted to Christine and wants to repair this car and, and has this strong desire for it. And we get a little bit of that in the history of LeBay, too. He has this similar relation. So is it like it, it opens up interesting questions that are never paid off, which is like, is Roland LeBay the devil mm-hmm. <laughs> and he you know and he's so evil that it spills over into the car um that might sound like a little place called the overlook hotel to you mm-hmm. right but much also much like the overlook hotel there's this question mark of like 
was, uh, you know, is he so evil that he make, makes Christine come alive? Or is Christine inherently evil? And it's just kind of like, you know, game recognize game <laughs> when it comes to being an evil asshole uh, in the 1950s, right? Which is also a little bit of the Overlook Hotel, right? You know, we get in The Shining, there's a little bit of a question mark, a question mark about, is it the location that brings the people or is it the people that made the location? And mm-hmm. the answer is a little bit of both. But but yeah, there's this kind of like, um, again, like the Overlook, um, Christine, the more people who are consumed by Christine, the more people show up in Christine. And, mm-hmm. uh, the you know, a, hum- a living human, Arnie, who is involved in, in with Christine is, is really just a vessel for what is running around inside of her. You know, in, in, and is not like someone to be tempted. You know, this isn't like Satan, and uh, you know, uh, you know, this isn't the devil's advocate, <laughs> right? Uh, Arnie's not Keanu Reeves, right? Um, this is some other kind of thing, um, and it's recycling some ideas from previous Stephen King. I, I thought maybe we'd save this a little bit further on, but it, this might just be worth talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this is a fully composite novel. Yeah, this is this is the and this is what you were talking about, I think, when you said that this is where our method for this show pays the dividends. Uh, This is the first novel that we've hit that is composed entirely of King things and specifically King things that we have, for the most part, I think, seen before in other venues, all kind of like Legoed together into something that is on the one hand new and on the other hand a uh, sort of weirdly deeply resonant with everything we've read up until this point yeah on every page uh, maybe not every single page but nearly every page you can see king recycling an idea from a previous work or trying to work over it again or trying to figure out how maybe it, it goes together and it's pretty astonishing. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it is interesting to see how Stephen King, you know, I know that, that a couple, uh, you know, in the past six episodes or so, there's been a couple of times where we've been like, oh, this is Stephen King, like, fully formed, right? I think mm-hmm. we talked about that with, that with The Dead Zone, I believe, was the first one where it's like, this is the f- full Stephen King, Stephen King thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we talked about with um, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, like, this is the Stephen King narratorial model that will go on for the next 30 years. This is the full thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when people talk about Stephen King, like kind of writing the same novel over and over again with different objects. This is the first time that we see that thing happen. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also one of uh, this might be the first time that it, there is no science fiction explanation. Yeah, uh, so interesting about that. Uh, when I was researching like the, the history and composition of this novel, uh, this is a book. This is according to Bev Vincent, of course, who writes these historical context essays over at StephenKingRevisited.com. Uh, this is, according to King, his first true horror novel since. I think I think that says I think that interview said The Shining uh, because there is no science fiction explanation for anything which is weird to consider because the shining actually does have kind of that science fictiony explanation where, where we're led to think of the overlook hotel as a kind of psychic battery uh but here it is as you say much more like we don't even get the battery right christine is not a battery christine is just like this sort of wound in reality where things go wrong 
Yeah, I mean, if, if Stephen King had written this when he wrote The Shining, and it's very funny. I mean, this is the thing that, that maybe I should say this first. This is the thing that uh, doing the show has really made apparent to me. Stephen King, in any given interview, is saying whatever the hell he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and Especially given the fact that pretty often we've been able to compare Stephen King interviews <laughs> and see him saying exactly opposite things. I think that that when Stephen King gave the interview is important. I think probably what he had for breakfast that day <laughs> has something to do with the answers he gives for this because it had The Shining had all those explanations about TK in them, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so did Carrie. Carrie had it, you know, a huge number of them. And then Firestarter like tripled down on it to the point where it was like, and we will all recognize that TK is real one day, <laughs> you know. Uh, which is, you know, obviously a narratorial voice, but, uh, you know, not necessarily what Stephen King believes, even though there's a real heavy hand of like, this is what Stephen King thinks uh, in there. Um, well, did it's you a catch, weird thing. Did you catch the bit in this novel where I think it's Dennis uh, says something like, I think one of the reasons that there's uh, not a lot of hard evidence for psychic phenomena is that people convince themselves that they haven't seen what they saw. Yes, I did. That's actually my one of my favorite Kingisms here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, absolutely. Uh, there's a few of those. There's a lot of, uh, you know, talking about the narratorial method, a uh, huge number of, uh, and he never saw his friend again. <laughs> like <laughs> that kind of foreshadowing that Stephen King is very famous for at this point. Um, there's a lot of that. And there's a whole lot. I mean, Dennis is just read. Yeah. Dennis is read from the, from Reed Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption, kind of retooled a little bit to be a high schooler. He's yeah. actually a combination of Red and Todd <laughs> from <laughs> from apt pupil. It's it's real weird. Um, like that all that has some really weird effects. And also here I'm going to blow your mind. So some more uh, Christine facts. Uh, one, this was originally going to be a short story. Oh, you don't say. Mm hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you don't say this. This novel with twenty pages of plot in it was originally <laughs> a short story. So uh, King, uh, as he tells this uh, in the late seventies, so about seventy eight or eighty nine, when the novel is actually set, um, and as as I've uh, said to you, I think before we started recording, uh, this means that he would have written this allegedly before he was in Pittsburgh for the filming of Creepshow with George Romero, even though this book is dedicated to Romero uh, and came out the same year as or rather just after Creepshow. So I don't know. I don't know if this maybe got set in a different location earlier on and then he switched it to Pittsburgh or if he just went to Pittsburgh like by chance and then life brought him to pittsburgh later who knows anyhow starts as a story uh as king tells it he falls in love with the characters and so it becomes the thing that it is now and then a uh, big picture structurally the really weird thing about this novel is that it is divided into three parts uh which is that's not in and of itself weird that's often a thing that happens with novels they get divided into parts but the narratorial voice works out Uh, In this way, part one is narrated entirely in the first person by Dennis. Part two shifts to a uh, third person omniscient narrator. And then part three shifts back to Dennis in the first person. This happened 
because uh, and King also says this, right? Uh, he painted himself into a corner, essentially. Uh, the, the narrative shifts when Dennis has a football accident and then he goes into the hospital for, you know, several weeks uh, while he's in traction or whatever. Yeah, when he gets dead zoned, yes. he goes into a coma. He has he goes into a coma. Mm hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, he gets straight up dead zoned. So he gets dead zoned. He goes into the hospital and while he's in the hospital um, recovering uh, and he, uh, you know, King has some other stuff on this, I guess I'll talk about. But anyway, in that middle part, uh, we shift into the third person and we get kind of the the wandering eye cinematic point of view from something like Salem's Lot, where we're kind of uh, scooting around the city, like going into different characters heads, uh, tracking things from kind of an omniscient perspective. King has said that the original plan was to have this entire middle part still narrated by Dennis, but narrated as hearsay, just like when Red puts together Andy's escape plan in Shawshank. This turned out to be untenable to do, I presumably because he couldn't come up with enough ways for like people to come into Dennis's hospital room or for Dennis to like interview people to try to put it all together, I guess. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Because this like opens with uh, <laughs> it like opens with this like third person narration, you know, obviously in that second section mm -hmm. as you're talking about. But it but it but it opens with Arnie Cunningham's 1958 Plymouth became street legal in the afternoon of November 1st, 1978. Like, I'm just imagining a nurse walking in and being like, Dennis, did you hear Arnie Cunningham's 1958 Plymouth became street legal on the afternoon of November 1st, 1978? Anyway, here's your bedpan. <laughs> like, but God, what a Steve thing to do, right? Like, and what I mean, what a good idea, theoretically. I, yeah. you know, I don't think this is a bad idea in any kind of way, but good God, it would be so hard to work. Also, we have to remember mm -hmm. that... Uh, Bruce Springsteen was playing way too loud from the apartment <laughs> below Steve when he was working on this, and Billy Joel was playing way too loud from the apartment above him. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't do these like storytelling trickeries with that kind of storytelling competition. This is this is going to get even better, Cameron. So here here oh, is an no. interview that I read with King, um, where he explains some of this, and I just I want your thoughts on on this kind of uh, this assertion. I had Dennis telling the story, and he was supposed to tell the whole story, but then he got in a football accident and was in the hospital while things were going on that he couldn't see. Then, for a long time, I tried to narrate that second part in terms of what he was hearing, hearsay evidence, almost like depositions. But that didn't work. I tried to do it a number of different ways, and finally I said, let's cut through it. The only way to do this is to do it in the third person. I tried to leave enough clues so that when the reader comes out of it, he'll feel that it's almost like Dennis pulling a Truman Capote. It's almost like a nonfiction novel. I think that it's still a first person narration. And if you read that second part over, you'll see it. It's just masked like reportage. Well, Steve, you got me because everything that is written is truly written from a perspective of a human being who wrote it down. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess it is that. I don't know if you were successful in that one, Steve. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled by the idea of taking like the Truman Capote in cold blood uh, model 
Which, you know, if, if you're not familiar, right, Capote, like, goes into a small town named Holcomb, Kansas, where an entire family has been murdered by some robbers. And then he writes this nonfiction novel uh, where he writes about this kind of true crime event, but in the in the manner and mode of a novel, like, attributing interior thoughts to characters and things like that. All very controversial in terms of, like, you know, how he is uh, exploiting or making use of tragedy and also how he sort of uh, interviewed his various sources, in particular one of the murders. Uh, but setting all that aside, it is hysterical to me to imagine someone doing that exact same thing. Uh, and then, like, I'm going to write my nonfiction novel where I project the interior, like, I imagine, right, the interior monologue of... Uh, like a 60 year old uh, auto garage owner operator who is being attacked in his house by a magic car. <laughs> like, oh, what was he thinking? What? <laughs> I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's something we haven't talked about yet. There's other stuff in this novel. There is a, a long and elaborate uh, 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 true crime novel in here about a smuggling operation that's operating in new england mm -hmm. uh from darnell and and then the uh crack team of detectives who are trying to get him yep <laughs> uh that's happening in this novel too maybe we'll talk about that in a bit but yeah this do this doesn't make a lot of sense and um yeah this i'm gonna preview the commentary uh for the film a little bit because john carpenter says something very funny in in the commentary again Go to patreon.com slash justking, or nope, patreon.com slash range touch uh, <laughs> in order to uh, listen to this bonus episode. It is out right now. But John Carpenter says that uh, whenever anyone in an interview asks you what you intended in a film, you should just parrot their question back to them. So if they say, oh, did you intend to show the interiority of the character by doing blah, 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 you should say, well, what I was doing in the scene was showing the interiority of the character by blah, 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 <laughs> which is a very funny John Carpenter thing to say. Uh, that feels like Stephen King doing that, mm -hmm. of him like uh, retroactively explaining what he was doing there. Because, and I say that because Stephen King has a million storytelling techniques that he's already deployed to do this exact thing, right? He's got the weird epistolary kind of stuff that he's done in. I think that showed up in the Dead Zone. Where did letters show up? Oh, Carrie. Forth. Carrie. Oh, I know that was. I know it was in Carrie. But that also had like all this other stuff. But there's one that we've read that just had people writing letters. I think it's the dead zone. Mm -hmm. I think it's the end, like toward the end of the dead zone where yeah. that comes up, where he's writing letters back and forth. But um, oh yeah, it's with him and his like lost love mm -hmm. who has a family now. Uh, you know, but both of those, right? Both of those are very strong models for how to do that kind of um. First person, highly subjective, yet getting access to this like universally kind of narrative perspective um, that are not this. I, I I think Steve's making things up. I you know to be just brutally honest, we we talk a lot about Stephen King's cocaine years in this show, and it's like on one level, and I think there's like you know within the Stephen King uh, I don't know discussion averse. There's like a little bit of memeing going on about that, right? They're like, ha ha ha, Stephen King was on cocaine, and that's that explains a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I do think it explains this novel. I, I think that it I think that Stephen King's drug abuse explains why this novel is you just got so much crap in it that, that has nothing to do with one another, and why it seems that every narrative thread is equally important to one another. Mm -hmm. Um I you know, I think that it is drug abuse combined with no one editing him combined with his lack of outlining you know once we fork over into like 
Arnie's mother's perspective for several pages. There is no way of knowing if this is going to matter or not later. Mm-hmm. And shocker, it doesn't. <laughs> like, <laughs> even a little bit. Uh, it doesn't pay off in anything. It, it doesn't have any kind of uh, narrative thread to it. Why does Dennis have so much um, discussion about his, like, cheerleader girlfriend that he clearly hates? Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's no reason for that, right? It feels like it's going to go somewhere, and and it doesn't. And it's just because, like, I think in Stephen King's kind of uh, writerly universe that he's occupying that has to do with where he is in his life, I mean, he's he, he left his family and went and lived in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for six months or whatever. And I think Joe Hill was with him for part of that time, because, right, Joe Hill's in Creepshow, but I don't think the entire time. And I think that probably has something to do with the amount of drugs he was using, mm. <laughs> right? Like, I think these stories all kind of run together um, in interesting ways. But, um, y- you know, there's a real authorial um, ambivalence that's happening in this novel that just makes it really hard to know what matters and what doesn't. And I think what Stephen King is telling us what matters or what choices he made or how he made those choices, I think that we we have to read that with the idea that, like, he might not know. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he just might not have a good idea. I have a really great quote from that same interview to read about that, but it's on a slightly different topic. Uh, so okay. I, I might I'll save that unless you just want me to, like, completely shift our gears right now. Let's shift our gears. OK, let's let's uh, put it in drive. Let's uh, motivate here. Yeah, let's motivate. I learned I learned a lot of gre- greaser slang while reading this. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to flag that, actually, if you've been following the evil greaser thread throughout Just King Things, literally from book one, this is the apotheosis of the evil greaser. Uh, this book is literally evil greaser transformation fiction. Uh, it, it really is. It's, it's really evil greaser fetish work. Yeah. <laughs> it's the uh, like, you know, the the uh, bimbofication meme, but yes. it, it's uh, taking you from a nerd to an evil greaser. Yeah, it's like Artie uh, walking and he sees Christine and then, like <laughs> and then his hair changes. Um, he, he starts getting different clothing on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Bobby, the kind of the evil greaser that Arnie, the evil greaser, murders, you know, the kind of prototypical evil greaser who has to be supervened in order to oh, attain oh, oh, greaser he, supremacy. Yeah. Is that is that his name? Is uh, his name Bobby in this? Buddy. Okay. Uh, he's just the evil boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Like straight up. He even has the same car. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Like, I, and we're not exaggerating when we say every, we could walk through this whole book and talk about how everything is lifted from another book. Mm-hmm. But Every major thing is lifted from another book. Mm-hmm. It's wild. If you could, the relationship between Dennis and, um, gosh, what what is uh, her name? The transfer student, Lee. Lee. That is the relationship between Ben Mears and Susan, yep. vis-a-vis her boyfriend or like fiance, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same relationship, except Arnie is that you know the, the third person in that party. Uh, it's 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 all just a retread. But anyway, sorry, I'm I'm uh, monologuing while you're trying to read this quote. So uh, you may you may think, <clears throat> dear listener, you may think like, OK, I can see kind of the themes at work here. Young boy in 1978 buys a car from 1958, begins working on it. 
uh, slowly takes on the mannerisms and characteristics of a 1950s asshole greaser. And these things all increase the more that he works on the car, the better that the car looks. He goes around like listening only to the oldies station, right? Only listening to music from the 50s. Uh, and you, you might think, as I said, there's a theme becoming apparent here, something about, you know, the past making a kind of claim on the present. In this case, a particular time in American history, the 1950s, making a claim on a young person in the late 70s and that influence being in some way malign, right? That there is uh, something from the 50s reaching forward to the 70s, uh, something still has a, a, an uncanny type of life and it's having an effect in the world. And we could, uh, being, you know, reader listeners in 2020, think like, OK, uh, here are all of the things that were happening in the 50s that were not good, that continued to have an effect in uh, in into the 70s and so on. Here is a quote from the same interview that I was just reading. So the interviewer asks, and this is an interview from uh, Twilight Zone magazine, I think in 1983 or 1984. So about the time when the book came out, uh, the interviewer says, you seem to bring up the 50s a lot in your work and have a great deal of nostalgia about the times. King replies, sure, I grew up in the 50s. That's my generation. I think there's been a fair amount of that from writers whom I would say are now the quote-unquote establishment. When I started writing with Carrie, I was 24, 25, something like that. I was a kid. Since then, 10 years have gone by, and 1947 has become a very respectable birth year for writers. So, there are a lot of us who actually developed our understanding of life and who grew to be, not adults, but thinking human beings in the 50s. I've got a lot of good memories from the 50s. Somebody once said that life was the rise of consciousness. For me, rock and roll was the rise of consciousness. It was like a big sun bursting over my life. That's when I really started to live, and that was brought on by the music of the 50s. The interviewer asks, do you have any more macabre memories of the 50s? And Steve says, No, I don't. All the macabre <laughs> things that I can remember and that come out of reality rather than from something that I made up started with the Kennedy assassination in 1963. Oh, yes. I don't have any bad yes. memories of the 50s. Everything was asleep. There was stuff going on. There was uneasiness about the bomb. But on the whole, I'd have to say that people in the 50s were pretty loose. Steve. Well, I, there's a lot there. There's okay. so much there. But to, and we can unpack that. But just to like tap back into what I was bringing up here, uh, all that th all the thematic stuff that I just brought up, all that thematic potential, none of that's here. Literally, like <laughs> George Le or Roland LeBay is just such an asshole that he brings the 1950s with him for no particular reason. He doesn't seem to have liked the 1950s a whole lot. He didn't like anything. He was a despicable, hateful man. <laughs> uh, the, the, the 50s were just fucking cool, Michael. What is your problem? <laughs> They were just awesome, and there's no problem with them. You know, it's really interesting to hear that, uh, you know, b before we talk about the uh, heaviness of that quotation. Uh, but, uh, you know, Grease comes out in 1978. Mm -hmm. and it shows up in this novel. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> they go see it, right? The yeah. drive-in or something. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what's interesting about that is that one could imagine 
a really interesting world in which a more interesting world than the one we live in where Stephen King is like, he watches Greece in 1978 and is like, this is some saccharine bullshit. Like the, you know, we had cool rock and roll, but we also had like world war two vets who came home and just beat the shit out of their families and were assholes all the time. And like, you know, we created a, uh, veneer of the social because we we also get you know the VA a little bit and about how those vets don't like Roland LeBay mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, there's this shadow not just of the 50s but of of World War II and what what people who were trained to do violence did when they came home. Even if Roland LeBay, I mean Roland LeBay is is also kind of dinged because he was not quote unquote really in the Second World War, right? He was in the motor pool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Stephen King really gets his dig in there about like. You know who deserves to be valorized for for service and who doesn't, um, but uh, you know they, one could imagine a world of that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and no, none of that is there, obviously. Um, but uh, quite specifically, yeah. I just want to say when they mm-hmm. go see Greece, Dennis, who I will remind you is like eighteen years old talks about how unbelievable it is. And he says, if you want to see a movie that shows you how teenagers really are, I recommend Blackboard Jungle, which is a film from 1955. Steve just can't help it. Like, he can't help but just make it. And, you know, sometimes in, uh, you know, I see, uh, you know, uh, responses to the show where people say, uh, you know, sometimes we attribute too much like biographical or our kind of intrinsic understanding of how Steve works, you know, to reading the narratorial fiction here, which is a point well taken. But also, how do you explain that? Yeah. <laughs> like other than it's just Stephen King stepping in and being like, hey, let me I need to puppet this character for a minute. This movie from when I was a child is awesome. <laughs> there is a moment. There is a moment where Dennis flashes back to the 50s and knows off the top of his head how much gas was per gallon two years before he was born. Like Dennis cares so much about the 50s and he's not even the one with the fucking haunted 50s car. <laughs> he's just the haunted car bystander. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 100%. Well, just to, to roll it back to talk about this quotation for a second. Uh, if you're not an American, right, um, you know, because we have a worldwide listenership. Thanks so much for listening to Just King Things. Uh, what kicked off in the 1950s were a lot of things, but <laughs> one of the predominant things is the American Civil Rights Movement, in which uh, uh, African Americans nationwide began uh, doing mass protests against, and this goes into the 1960s and the 1970s, but began doing uh, protests against Jim Crow laws, you know, segregation in the United States, both implicit and explicit, so in the South, legally, um, and in the the North, uh, sometimes legally, but sometimes not, but still, de facto, you know, racism happening everywhere. It is a, uh, uh, especially the late 1950s, an incredibly important time for social transformation. Nothing that happens in the 60s really makes sense without thinking about the late 50s. So it, that, that quotation is astonishing mm-hmm. in that regard. Everything um, was I mean, asleep. Everything was asleep. Steve just had his eyes closed. And when the uh, um, the uh, when the Black Panther showed up to his college, he was not prepared to hear any of that. It seems like mm-hmm. um, there's something else I wanted to say about that too, but I, I've been it's been obliterated in my mind. But what an interesting quotation. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you want to mention the Kennedy assassination again? Oh yeah, that was the other thing. 
Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear him say that, though, right? To kind of confirm. I love it when my suspicions about Steve are confirmed by him, uh, you know, even though I think he'll say whatever he wants to on any given day. Um, I love when he says the exact same thing that I've been just asserting. Um, the Kennedy assassination is the most important event of Stephen King's life. No question. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it's the most important political event maybe in American history. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this novel kind of, you know, progresses through. We get this uh, Arnie and Dennis are friends. Arnie finds the haunted car. The haunted car starts making him do things. We start getting, especially in that middle section, you know, um, cuts back and forth where Christine is going and murdering people and then comes back, you know, and self-pilots herself back to the uh, to the garage that she's in. Arnie's doing asshole stuff to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, he starts being like a evil stalker creep. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he and Lee, the confidence that he gains and the physical transformation too. Stephen King is really explicit that like Arnie is, you know, quote unquote disgusting. Mm -hmm. He has acne that has like oozing pores and he's like constantly has weeping, you know, um, uh, sores on his face and things like that. Um, Stephen King really goes for the gross out on that. And that all clears up, you know, Christine, there seems to be maybe some sort of relationship where Christine is, uh, maybe vampirically, you know, feeding off of his love, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, makes him more confident, more attractive, all these different things. And uh, he gets some dates. Um, th those start going wrong. Lee almost chokes in the car, um, you know, and uh, Arnie is basically not going to save her is kind of the implication. Um, and she gets, she gets saved. The uh, Dennis gets hurt, gets dead zoned for a little while, goes into a coma, comes back, and then like everything has gone wild. You know, it's a, a narrative shortcut in the same way it is in the dead zone, right? Of like, mm -hmm. let's build up a bunch of stuff that kind of happens kind of off screen or at least without the character's knowledge or intervention that then they can come back and like intervene in. They recognize that Christine is like hella evil and doing all kinds of murders. Um, a police detective starts like figuring this out too, and then he gets murdered off screen entirely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we don't even get like a cutaway to Christine killing him. Um, and Arnie gets caught in an elaborate interstate smuggling ring. Yep, because <laughs> he uh, yeah he works for darnell who's kind of the the only sort of majorish character we haven't talked much about uh but he's he's the like criminal like small-time criminal who runs the garage where arnie keeps christine to do his work and then to keep christine there he starts doing all these smuggling jobs for darnell and we get <laughs> we get to learn so much about darnell's like tax evasion <laughs> Yes. Oh, a huge amount. We get to hear about, we get to spend a, like, uh, perspective, uh, you know, couple pages with his accountant being served with papers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the thing. Yep, absolutely. Um, he, he I, maybe Darnell is the closest to a new character type that we're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, although he, you know, we're getting a couple, we're getting a little bit of, like, um, Again, Shawshank Redemptioniness with him. He's kind of a combination of a few of those people. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I would still call him like well within the the worn territory of what Stephen King's been doing here. We haven't talked about. I guess we the 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 big thing about like all the murders here 
is that Arnie, because he is a nerd and the most stereotypical nerd imaginable, and in fact, this is how Dennis introduces Arnie to us. This is how the book begins, uh, is Dennis giving kind of the, the lowdown on his and Arnie's history to, to the reader. Uh, and this, this is the other thing that is so weird about this novel is that so much of it is narrated from Dennis's perspective. And uh, I believe the thing that I read from Beth Vincent's essay suggested that really it was Dennis that was the character that King became interested in and kind of his perspective and like the contrast between Dennis's life and Arnie's life. Uh, so Dennis is a character whose head we spend a lot of time in and he's an asshole. He sucks. He like he, he's Todd. He he is like, what if Todd was not obsessed with World War Two? Yeah. Apt people. Mm hmm. Um, he's a what What was the a Stebbins was, you know, that kind of guy, kind of an asshole, like a little bit of an asshole, but like a prepared asshole for like the world that is in front of him. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was Stebbins from the long walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Dennis is. Uh, this he's he's an asshole, uh, but he explains that Arnie was always being picked on by this certain group of boys at school who were also, as as we've, as we've mentioned, were also all themselves evil greasers, despite this being 1978. Uh, a fun detail here is and it's a thing that I noticed because it showed up also in the body. Uh, one of the like calling cards of the evil greaser for Steve at this point is that they have pegged jeans which is to say that they like cuff the bottoms of their jeans like they roll them up. Um, and Steve has such disdain for this, this specific like fashion aesthetic choice, which he clearly associates with being a juvenile delinquent. And it is so funny to me because literally the first time I can ever remember like anyone telling me about cuffed jeans, it was my grandma telling me to do that so I wouldn't wear out the hems on the bottom of the cuffs. Oh, I thought she was going to tell you to do it so you wouldn't be such a nerd at school. <laughs> I thought she was going to be like, back in it, she like, you know, pulled the pack of cigarettes out of her sleeve. Yeah. And she was like, <laughs> listen to me, young Michael. Uh, let me tell you how to be cool. Peg those jeans. Oh, yes. No, but so anyway, right. <laughs> that really has a different, that phrase has a different uh, vibe in 2021 yeah, than it did. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a reason I think we start calling it cuffed jeans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, these these uh, bullies end up, uh, after the first time Arnie restores Christine with incredible, amazing speed, uh, they end up, uh, they, they, Arnie got one of them expelled from school because, the, the, the head evil dude, because he pulled a switchblade during a, a fight, which is another thing that the evil greaser always does and is going to show up again. But uh, that happens. The kid gets expelled. And so for revenge, they trash Christine. And so the sort of middle portion of the novel is Christine picking off all of these guys one by one. Uh, and that's really like the closest that this gets to a, a traditional kind of like horror plot in terms of I mean, it's essentially like a slasher movie at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like a million percent. Mm hmm. Uh, which is why Carpenter is able to make a slasher movie out of it. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's literally uh, shots that are just uh, replications of Halloween mm -hmm. uh, that, that are in there, but with a car. Right. <laughs> what if Michael Myers had a radio? <laughs> <laughs> you would just play one song. Um, 
Yeah, uh, you know, some other interesting stuff that's going on. Uh, well, maybe we should talk about the end of the novel. They kill this car. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns into, the kind of last third, turns into this weird pincer move where the police are trying to get Darnell, mm-hmm. like, you know, for his, like, uh, small-time, crimey kind of stuff. And they're, they think that uh, one of the detectives thinks that Arnie is somehow killing all these people, mm-hmm. even though Arnie has the perfect alibi for all the murders. You know, he's like out of town or he is asleep or, <laughs> uh, you know, any, something like that. And that's because LeBay or Christine or whatever, the, go- the ghostly, the evil car is doing the murders independently mm-hmm. and is using the fact that Arnie is out of town to like really make it, you know, to, to get everyone uh, off the trail. And uh, <laughs> so there's this like pincer move that's happening, and they're like investigating the murdery kind of part. While uh, uh, Dennis and I, I want to call her Sophie. Her name is not Sophie. Sophie? <laughs> what is her name? Lee. Lee. I don't, Where is I Sophie don't know. coming from? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. It's just like locked in my head that that for whatever name her name is Sophie. So that's why I have to keep asking. I know it's not Sophie. Uh, Lee. Oh, I don't know why I can't do that. Um, you know, some, some st- sometimes you're possessed by an evil car and you can't remember the right names. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, hashtag, hashtag evil car problems. But uh, the, the other side of, like, the scissor or pincer move, right, is that they're investigating the evil car possession angle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and they kind of get... Uh, I really like the writing of... God, it's like it's not Turnbull. What's the guy, the detective's oh, name? His name is Junkins. Junkins, what a cool Rudolph name Junkins. Rudolph jo- Rudy Junkins. Uh, that sounds like a character I would make up a hundred percent. Like at the opening of one of these episodes, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm Rudy Junkins. Um, but uh, Rudy Junkins is—he's figured it out. He's like this car is, is alive or some shit. Yeah, that's such—he's such a cool Stephen King character, right? The very sort of like practical-minded guy who has looked at the situation and his like—he—he's he, just like. There's one explanation here, and it's that this car is somehow coming to life and killing people. And I can't say that because that sounds crazy, but that's 100% what's going on, and I'm going to proceed as if that's the case. And he is a recycled character as well. Do you know where he is from? Is he from Salem's Lot? He could be from Salem's Lot, but I'm thinking even more direct than that. Oh, no. Who are you thinking of? The Mangler. Oh, that's right. He's the, he's the detective from the Mangler, right? Uh-huh. He's the guy who like looks at all of the logical options and can't come up with it, and so he goes. He's like, maybe this car is possessed and evil. Yeah. Um. And Christine itself is like this weird combination of the Overlook Hotel and the Mangler. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, kind of fueled by by the the souls of the dead or whatever. But, uh. But yeah. So he's doing some like cool stuff here, and they kind of. It seems like they might cross over, but Stephen King takes the option to just murder him out of the novel instead. And so it is down to Dennis and Lee, not Sophie, Lee, mm-hmm. to uh, to murder Christine. How, how do they? I This is what's really weird. I don't remember quite how they do it. So uh, Dennis rents a septic pumping truck named <laughs> Petunia. Right. Because, of That's course, right. because we've yeah, King King is a formalist. And so we reach <laughs> the end of the novel and we must have the opposing force to the evil little red Christine. And it's the giant uh, pink or purple. I don't remember which color it is. A septic trunk truck named Petunia. Yeah, who's going to smash Christine, essentially. Mm-hmm. 
in, in an ambush maneuver. <laughs> They're going to like lure Christine into Darnell's garage and then run her over a whole bunch. Yes, which the movie does this so much better uh, or ima- has imagines a way better way of accomplishing this. But uh, considering we'll, there's a junkyard out back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, but so we'll talk about that in the bonus episode, of course. But uh, yeah, and then they do it. Yep, the end. Uh, Well, they do that. So a couple of things happen. Um, One is that Christine shows up and she's killed Arnie's dad. Like Arnie's dad's corpse is just like bopping around in the front or in the front or the back seat or whatever. Like Dennis sees it and he's like, no, it is very much uh, it's Salem's lot Mm -hmm. because they call around at the end and they're like, hey, this car is murdering people. All of our families should get together in a place where a car can't kill you. Mm-hmm. Literally anywhere on this planet. Uh, other than maybe your own home. Because Darnell is murdered in his own home by a car that rams through the wall. But also if he had not gone downstairs to see what was up with that, he would have been alive. So, you know, uh, I don't know if I can say a car can kill you anywhere. But yeah, they call around and they're like, everyone be safe. Just like they do in Salem's Lot. And it's the same reveal as in Salem's Lot, which is like, people didn't do what you told them to. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in Salem's Lot, now they're vampires. In in this, Arnie's dad's in Christine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, tumbles out, right? Doesn't he get, like, dumped or something? Yeah, he, he gets thrown through the windshield. Um, That's right. But he's already dead by that point because, yeah, and so Dennis has to have, like, this moment where he imagines, like, Arnie's dad coming outside the house, seeing Christine in the driveway, and then for some reason getting inside, even though he's already been warned that the car is probably murdering people. And this is the other thing is I think also Arnie's dad says something to Dennis to the effect where he started to have that suspicion as well. Yes, yes. He's like, I think the car is killing people. <laughs> and and this is the thing. Uh, this is Stephen King uh, doing what he talked about in Dance Macabre and what he's talked about several times since then, right? Arnie's dad is a university professor. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he has no practical knowledge of the world. He is functionally an idiot. Mm-hmm. And he's got to get killed by that car, right? Mm-hmm. This is like... Stephen King's working class justice. The only uh, the only way Michael Cunningham would not have gotten into that car is if his wife were there to nag him into not doing it. Yes, uh, because they are again, we haven't said this, but they are a replication of Todd's parents, too. They are like overly permissive liberals who can't deal with the fact that their son is bucking their um, kind of authority and in the moment of bucking their authority by getting the car and learning how to drive and not paying attention and not uh, continuing on like the college track and all the stuff that they want, uh, that turns into like authoritarian desire on their part, right? Mm-hmm. This is Stephen King's like distrust of the liberal mindset, um, you know, entirely put in front here mm-hmm. that, uh, that g- good ideas, but they're too permissive and too authoritarian. Um, you know, Steve, Steve believes that he's, uh, you know, any kind of, of leftist, but, or, you know, left leaning centrist, but when it comes down to brass tacks, that is just not the case. Yeah. There's a line that Dennis has where he's like, well, Arnie's parents would, uh, you know, voice their, uh, support of this or that union or like migrants or all these sort of social causes that, uh, Arnie's parents, uh, support. And that is all obliterated by the hypocrisy of them wanting their son to go to college rather than become a car mechanic. Yeah. Right. It, it's like it's there, there's a total like ethical hollowness at the center of these people that Dennis slash King himself does not uh, stand. Yeah, I think Steve had a bad time when he was teaching 
<laughs> in in college. Yeah, yeah, he seems to have have a, an issue. Um, so Arnie's mom also dies. Uh, Arnie and his mom Regina are going to look at a college because one of the things yeah. this is actually one of the, sort of the interesting things about the novel is that the way that Christine slash LeBay works on Arnie to kind of like get him out of town is that it uh, puts it, it, it causes him to like you know, uh, fight with his parents, be contrarian, rebellious, and so on. Uh, and that causes all sorts of stress. But then suddenly Arnie will do something that is back in character, like go out of town for a chess team competition or like talk to his mom and be like, you know, I've been thinking and you're right, I should go to college. Let's organize a campus visit. And then they then Arnie gets out of town and then Christine is free to go murder whoever while Arnie has a clean alibi. So this is what's happening at the end is that Christine is you know, setting up to do another uh, series of murders. And so Arnie goes out of town with Regina and they are driving back from the campus visit and they crash on the interstate because someone who witnesses it uh, says that there there appeared to be three people in the car, not two. And there was some sort of struggle going on. And it's implied that LeBay's ghost, when it was clear that Christine was not going to last, like tried to flee and go back to Arnie or whatever. Yeah, you think LeBay was, like, trying to get control of the car to, like, Christinify this, like, Volkswagen or whatever? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's not a lot. Of, but, yeah, I do think that is that is so interesting that, like, they, they kill Christine, right? They just smash her up. And then that, that kind of, um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> repossession happens. Haha, mm-hmm. <laughs> Get it? Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that occurs of, of Arnie's body. And it manifests in Arnie an extremely important, I mean, the secondary character for the book, right? Like, Dennis is our POV character, but Arnie is, you know, the person we're supposed to care about in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And it's tragic that he is taken advantage of and transformed by LeBay into this, like, you know, I don't know, avatar uh, or whatever. But he he dies off screen. You know, he, yeah. he dies in a report in the same way that... Um, Junkins does mm-hmm. um and that that's a pretty interesting way to handle it i think he he's uh we haven't said this yet but arnie's just christine or not christine oh. sorry <laughs> I was uh, like, carrie. Uh. <laughs> arnie's christine arnie's carrie um yes he, he's carrie white he is male carrie white who turns into a greaser instead of you know killing everyone at the prom right sort of the implication that the the assholishness of LeBay. so one of the other things we learn about LeBay is that he probably murdered some people when he was like 12 uh, there was yes. like there was like he a burn their house down he, with them inside of it. It's fucked up. Yeah, he was like uh, bullied or something by this kid. And so he set the kid's house on fire. And then when his younger brother saw him coming back in that night, like smelling of gasoline, he threatened to kill his younger brother if he told anyone. Uh, so there's this kind of implication that Arnie himself, because he being the the scapegoat for the school, has built up so much resentment inside him that LeBay slash Christine just kind of taps into that and routes it into, you know, a new wave of destruction or what have you. He's he's both Carrie and Jack in that the overlook, you know, the same way that the overlook like gets to work on Jack. We get a couple of uh, point of view chapters from Arnie where it's very similar. And in fact, that's going to show up in my my kingism. Uh, but like the the perspective from Arnie where he is on the one hand, um, 
aware that something bad is happening. Like he he can feel it. He can see it. Like he's like something here isn't right. My life is not working correctly. Uh, and then he's also constantly like uh, being like thinking himself around right the the influence of the car slash LeBay is constantly like sort of pulling him back around where he's like oh no no this is fine I'm doing the right thing uh mm -hmm. so we've got kind of that but also the the scene before the finale where they fight Christine where Dennis tries to confront Arnie about this at school and Arnie kind of does his his full and total heel turn or whatever is some of the corniest shit that we've read uh why why is it so corny um hold on i need to i need to jump back to this mm -hmm. Wait, while you're looking i want to read my republican theory okay or, or stephen king's republican theory okay do this that. is just another weird little thing that's happening so stephen king uh in the mouth of dennis says this um so Lee Lee comes to to the school, and the reason that why she can be attracted to Arnie is that she doesn't know what Arnie looked like before, like his acne went away. Mm -hmm. Basically, is what what the logic is here. So it says um, they didn't really see talking about the high school kids. They didn't really see him the way he was now. They saw a memory of him, but Lee was different because she was a transfer. She had no idea how really gross Arnie had looked his first three years at LHS. Of course she would if she got last year's Libertonian and took a look at the picture of the chess club, but oddly enough, that same Republican tendency would almost surely make her disregard it. What's now is forever. Ask any Republican banker and he'll tell you that's just the way the world ought to run. High school kids and Republican bankers. When you're little, you take it for granted that everything changes constantly. <laughs> so uh, Stephen King is saying that, like, inherently when you get to a certain age— your conservatism and your like memory of the time before it will overwhelm any kind of possibility for change uh, that that just starts happening, which is wild as hell compared to that or thinking about in relationship to that quote that you read about the 1950s. Yep. <laughs> it's interesting how that is like, that's such like a classic classic boomer thing that I've heard from oh, so many yeah. boomer relatives that you'll get more conservative when you get older. <laughs> Nope, it didn't happen. <laughs> is, I was I was a very right leaning libertarian when I was like sixteen, and boy, <laughs> I have not gotten more conservative. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that that didn't uh, didn't happen. Lo and behold, uh, when you can't buy a house at at uh, at the age of nineteen after you've had your second child and uh, are working down at the factory, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, here's the thing: I don't want things to stay the same. Because things right now aren't good. No. <laughs> and 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 thirty years ago they also weren't good. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, there's no there, you know, only nineties kids remember uh nostalgia is just as bad as as boomer nostalgia for me, but at least as a part of that, it's not like, yeah, things were awesome in nineteen ninety nine. They they weren't, just our media was maybe more fun sometimes. It's like we had cool toys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, but geopolitically we we're not in a better spot. But Anyway, um, uh, did, you, did you find your, your quotation here? Yeah, so how this works is that Dennis shows up and he's like, I'm going to have this conversation with Arnie. And there's like this battle of wills uh, in, within Arnie between Arnie himself and like the spirit of LeBay. And it is uh, so I mean, just there's another thing layered on top of this is which is that Dennis, when he's narrating, is constantly going to present this story as if it's a love triangle between Lee, Arnie and Christine. Uh, which is bullshit because you'll you'll note from my summary that the actual love triangle 
is really between Dennis Lee and Arnie or maybe Arnie Dennis and Lee, because there's like a, a an interesting like homosocial in- intimacy between Arnie and Dennis that like degrades over the novel. I mentioned that Thanksgiving is a plot point here, and it's because uh, Arnie shows up when Dennis is in. Uh, the hospital around Thanksgiving and like brings him a whole like little dinner and they have beers and they have a really great time and watch football and Arnie like Mm -hmm. lights candles. It gets weirdly kind of intimate and romantic. Um, Yeah, this would be the, the, that's one of the tragedies of this novel is that, that if you cut 200 pages out of it, there could be a really cool story about like a close friendship that happens across um, you know, social fields, mm-hmm. right? And that, and that the tragedy, and I think we're supposed to read this into the novel, even though it is like obliterated by all this other extraneous detail. But that part of of why Dennis is so invested in figuring out what the hell is going on is that he's lost his best friend. Yeah, you know, and you know that that is like touching and powerful. I, this is exactly the relationship that happens, by the way, between the popular girl and Carrie White. Mm-hmm. It's also the same relationship that happens between several people and the main character of The Long Walk, right? Like, <laughs> this is territory Stephen King likes to go. Oh, this is also Chris Chambers and Gordy, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, eventually, right? Theoretically, uh, you know, in that, that future that they project in that novel. But, uh, you know, that that could be that could work so well. And actually, I think the film does that really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, it just gets there's so much uh, good stuff that could be in this novel that just kind of gets lost in the mix. But but sorry. So you were saying that to get to. The, yeah. The, so so that all happens. Right. That's all kind of like background here. Uh, Lee shows up is into Arnie and Dennis is just like uh, incredibly horny for Lee from moment one. Um, I will also just pause here to say that like Lee is not treated particularly well by this novel, uh, in the sense that she has no character notes really aside from being attracted to these boys and her feelings on that. Uh, oh yeah, this is a deeply misogynistic novel. Yeah. Like, uh, we are back to old, old time Steve on this one, Mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, Arnie's mother, you know, just like this, this controlling true of a woman, mm-hmm. um, typical get... liberal family, letting the woman run <laughs> things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is that vibe. You get Lee who really is a pretty face and like this, like, you know, kind of magnet that just is attracted to Arnie and then is attracted to Dennis because she's no longer attracted to Arnie. Uh, and then Dennis's girlfriend who gets treated like gets written about in the exact same tone as, um, as Todd writes about his girlfriend and that pupil, just mm-hmm. without all the additional kind of horrifying stuff on it. You know, he's basically like, yeah, we, we fuck. And then I forget about her. Mm-hmm. Does she even get a name? I don't even remember. Uh, she does. It, she does get a name eventually, but for the first like two or three times she's mentioned, she's just called like the cheerleader with the awesome body. And then she gets named yes. maybe twice. Her name is Roseanne or something. Yes, that's it. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's just some real, and I think that's it. That might be the only women in the novel. Um, uh, cause like, I don't think LeBay is married. Uh, anyway, yeah. sorry, sorry not to get off track, but yeah, I mean, you're <laughs> extremely, extremely, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm digging down through a lot of things here to, to really sell you on why this scene near the end sucks. So, uh, <laughs> Lee is into Arnie until Arnie becomes a, you know, haunted greaser asshole. And so they break things off. Arnie is like, I've got to get her back, right? Like that's that's kind of his uh, motivation from that point. Or like, you know, Christine like wants him to want her back because, you know, she didn't get her when she almost choked on that hamburger, what have you. Uh, But 
Lee turns to Dennis as Arnie's best friend. And then Dennis, like just immediately, like within their first meeting where they have these conversations, it's just like, I was falling in love with my best friend's girl. And it's just like, you asshole, (laughs) like, shut up. Like, well, I wish that I had Arnie's girl. (laughs) It's just, it's so stupid. It is so uncompelling that Dennis is just like, I just, and, and that's really, you get the sense that, um, you know, the cart is being put before the horse uh, in, in the sense that I think Steve wanted to write about a love triangle, but didn't want to like make it plausible or really like give it a psychology, right? He starts with the love triangle and then sort of works backwards. So the characters just like gravitate into this situation for basically no reason. Um, And I realized I thought a hot girl was hot. Yeah. Like literally (laughs) I was falling in love with her. Like Mm -hmm. you've had three conversations with her, man. And they were all about a haunted car. Uh, Michael, you just don't understand the uh, the way that Stephen King can so perfectly apprehend the the mind of a high schooler. <laughs> so you know that's really a, a Michael problem. It sounds like to me. So uh, they kill they kill this car. No, no, no. I need I need to still finish. Oh, okay. I haven't gotten to the scene. Uh, oh, that's right. Right. I'm so sorry. So, I'm so sorry. Dennis and Lee start like doing their thing. Like they're they're making out in the parking lot of a KFC. Arnie catches them. He's super pissed off. Then Dennis goes to school, and this is like you know the last day before they try to take out Christine. And he confronts Arnie, and it's just the most rote like uh up like on the surface, like, no subtlety at all. Like he yells at Arnie until like LeBay like recedes or something. And then like the true Arnie comes through and he's like, you, you don't understand. Sometimes LeBay is here and sometimes he's not here. It's like, he's struggling or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, LeBay takes over again. And then it's like, he's just talking to LeBay and that's where he says, you know, like come over to Darnell's tonight and so on and so forth. But before that we have, you know, the, the sort of like, you know, we can see like Dennis talks about how he can see Arnie's face shifting. Like it looks like Arnie. And then suddenly it doesn't look like Arnie and back and forth. And it's all this stuff. You took my girl, blah, 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 blah. And it's, as I it's, it's the culmination of the love triangle thing. But it is so stupid and so corny and so uncompelling. And it is supposed to be this like big lasting emotional beat because it's the moment when Dennis and Arnie like are, are you know, split apart forever. Uh, and it just it is it it is so interesting, I think, to compare this to someone like Jack in The Shining, where. Yeah. Jack is, you know, similarly just kind of an asshole and a little bit of a flat character, but I buy Jack's struggle so much more than I do Arnie's and particularly Arnie's as it is processed through and by Dennis. Well, that's the thing, right? That's why the scene doesn't work is that, you know, to kind of talk schematically about it, right? Uh, The relationship between these characters in The Shining this exact same scene happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, functionally, right? This is this is when Jack is in the hallway and he is able to maintain control of himself for just a second to allow Danny to run away. And then that's right before um, he smashes his own face, right? And once his face is smashed, then the overlook can take him over completely. This is that scene, just rewritten again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but in that in that thing, uh, you know, right? We get. Um, a relationship between a father and a son 
that is that has been building for 300 plus pages where Jack repeatedly does violence to his own son in ways that he does not want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, you know, I think that the, the most charitable reading of, of Jack and certainly the way he thinks about himself is that he hurts Danny, but he never really means to do it. Right. It's the alcohol or it's the kind of abuse that he suffered as a child coming out. Right. He is pre- reproducing a system that um, that hurts him as much as it hurts Danny in this kind of emotional narrative logic sense. So this is a moment of, you know, what we might call like divine grace, mm-hmm. right? Where he is able to assert himself over evil. And Jack isn't good, right? But he is trying to be good. And that's what makes that work is that he's trying to be good and is able to be for such a small amount of time before he is destroyed mm-hmm. entirely. Um, so it's resting on a, a father-son relationship that it's incredibly strong. We've spent so much time with it. One, the Denison Arnie relationship is not that strong. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it if maybe if we cut 200 pages out of this novel, it could be, but we just get a lot of them spending time together. We don't really get a good sense of why they spend time together. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why Arnie likes Dennis. The last thing that Dennis says in this conversation is, uh, in, with regard to Lee, she's great in bed, I said. Too bad you'll never know. Right. Yeah. So there's no uh, bringing together. Right. You know that this moment in The Shining is a place where they like meet and they realize that they love one another. And then uh, Danny has to run away. Mm-hmm. This is they meet and they have the same situation and they realize they hate each other, yeah. essentially. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then they go off and do their thing. The other thing is that the, the what pays that scene off, it wouldn't work in The Shining if Jack didn't die in that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if Jack was not destroyed in that scene, it wouldn't function. Uh, he if he would have another opportunity to go and do more actions as himself, it, I don't think that would work. It's a heroic sacrifice. Here it is. Arnie goes off and like goes to look at colleges after this, <laughs> right? Even though he's not in the narrative really, but but there's this kind of thing where if if at the end of this scene. Um, Arnie would have been like, you know, Christine is going to murder or LeBay is going to murder Dennis and Arnie asserts himself and, and, um, you know, skids, um, Christine into like a bridge truss or something Mm -hmm. and, and is like, go Dennis, go. And then you can see like LeBay destroying him or like, you know, ripping from the inside out, like uh cycle of the werewolf style, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like something like that, then that might, you know, do the same function as the shining, but there's none of that there, right? Like the Stephen King, this is the, the combinatory novel problem. He is trying to take the, the Lego piece from the shining and just put it directly in Christine. And it won't work because like all the little pips aren't there, right? Like this is a slightly different shaped piece and he doesn't realize it. Um, it's a really great moment. You know, if you were teaching people, you know, somewhere in the uh, question sewer episode, someone asks us about like, you know, what Stephen King books would you teach? I would not teach Stephen King books in a general sense, but if I were going to teach two, teaching the shining and Christine back to back in like a novel writing course or in Mm -hmm. a, like, how do you make novels work course would be a really great example of like, uh, I don't like teaching like good object, bad object, but if I did teach good object, bad object, this would be a great one to do because there's so many great comparisons to be made that just work in the shining and don't work in this one. Mm-hmm. So they kill the car and then we get like Dennis's epilogue that's written like, I don't know, three years later or something. 
something like that. Oh, yeah, a while later, because he can like he talks about being able to walk better. Or I guess I guess technically the whole thing is being written later, right? But then he gets to the epilogue, and this damn epilogue. This is a long ass novel that then has a short story ending. I love the epilogue. I think it's great. Oh, it is. It is great. It's just yeah, so yeah, weird. Yeah. It is. It's extremely odd. It, it is almost like Stephen King wanted to write more in the book and someone thankfully was like, please don't do that. <laughs> please just end the novel. But I think this is actually a pretty good, you know, people have talked about Stephen King and names. We've talked quite a bit about that here in the show. This is a pretty good one. Yeah. They kill the car. Um, and then you get this epilogue that's like they're they're not happily ever after because this all happened to high schoolers. Yep. <laughs> like, what do you think was going to happen? Um, yeah, Lee goes off I, and, like, marries someone else. Like, Dennis goes and, like, has a job and a life and a career. Uh, and one of those bullies who wrecked Christine and then all got murdered, there's one guy who did not get murdered because he skipped town. And Dennis has to tell us, after he sort of, you know, reviews, here's what happened to everyone afterward. Uh, he says, you know, and I started writing this all down because I noticed a, an interesting news item uh, recently, and it was this guy in, I think, California who was working at a drive-in theater. He was closing up for the night, and he was uh, murdered in a hit and run. And that guy's name is the exact same name of the guy who fled town back back during Christine's first rampage in high school. So even though Christine has been uh, supposedly trashed, right, totaled, uh, this guy has ended up dead in 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 a hit and run and and the coincidence is too much for Dennis just just absolutely too much and so he says uh oh and it was something like <laughs> who is it that says oh Mercer is the guy who the cop who ends up being in charge of having the car crushed down into a cube and Mercer happens to tell Dennis that one of the guys who was like moving the wreckage uh, got an injury on his hand and he said uh, the way Mercer tells it he's like he said the car bit him so then Dennis ends the novel saying of course it's impossible but it was all impossible to start with I keep thinking of George LeBay in Ohio his sister in Colorado, Lee in New Mexico. What if it started again? What if it's working its way east, finishing the job, saving me for last? His single-minded purpose, his unending fury. And that's the end of the book. Really wish Steve had cut those last two lines, but... Uh... But yeah, it's great. What a, what a cool ending to the book. Um, you know, I just, I like it. Yeah. I actually like some of the stuff that's happening before. Also, this entire thing is written in the narrative voice of Gordy from the body. Yep. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is just the ending to the body, uh, kind of reformulated for a different novel. Um, I, I really like this part. It's, it's actually, holy shit. It's what we predicted or not predicted, but like speculated upon in the last bonus episode where, uh, or maybe it was just the last full episode where, um, <laughs> what if at the end of the body, Gordy started talking about the events of Carrie? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, uh, Carrie White blew up. Uh, <laughs> Carrie White's home was destroyed by meteors. <laughs> but this this is a, kind of a little bit before what you read. Um, I think I'm going to be all right now. Last Christmas season, when I sent Lee her annual card, I added a line to my usual note on the back. Below my signature on impulse, I scribbled, how are you dealing with it? 
Then I sealed the card up and mailed it before I could change my mind. I got a postcard back a month later. It showed the new Taos Center for the, the performing arts on the front. On the back was my address in a single flat line. Dealing with what? L. <laughs> One thing or another, I guess we find out things we have to know. And that's like, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's like, you know, I, I, I'm not w- quite willing to say that like it's worth, in fact, it's not worth reading. I, I'm definitely worth saying it is not worth reading this entire novel to get <laughs> there. But I was like, kind of like, you know, real meal, real, uh, lukewarm on this whole thing. And I got to the epilogue and I was like, Steve's got it. Mm-hmm. God damn it. God damn you, Steve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got it. Uh, but so, yeah, I, uh, it's not a good novel. But I, I like a lot of pieces of this. Um, and I think as like a formal exercise, thinking about this novel is incredibly helpful. And like we said at the beginning, this is what the show is about. The show is about like figuring Stephen King out in some ways. And Christine is a big puzzle piece in that of like, here's how this guy is going to start writing novels for a little while. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I think what's going to be more fascinating for us going forward is like, how does he buck, you know, how does he put the, the, the Legos together in such a way that it doesn't look like Christine? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's going to be pretty interesting. But between the last couple of novels, all the pieces of it are here, mm-hmm. you know, um, that, that, and that's something that's pretty interesting, too. That the big, the big um, kind of tent poles for the next 10 years or so. They, they've got all these pieces in them, and uh, Tommy Knockers is just Christine rewritten. I'm going <laughs> to say that right now. It's just Christine. Okay. Well, yeah, um, so, that makes sense, we'll right? I was, something maybe just to gesture at, right? There, there is obviously a way to read this as like an addiction novel, right? Arnie becomes addicted uh-huh. to Christine. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, and that's 100% how John Carpenter sees it. Uh, John Carpenter <laughs> sees Christine as a story that is about uh, like uh, this guy getting laid for the first time, basically. <laughs> yeah, and, like he I just can can't. It. He can't help it. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Yeah, it's all a sexual metaphor for John Carpenter. Uh-huh. Check out the bonus episode: Patreon.com/slash Range Touch. Uh, so let's jump into some segments. Sure. Okay. My favorite Kingism is the segment where we each pick a particular point in the novel, a a short uh, sentence or paragraph where the prose or style to us seems indelibly Kingian, indicative of what Stephen King does as a writer that is just, you know, the the flavor of the brand of the man himself and of his craft. Uh, My favorite Kingism in my edition shows up on page 355 which is kind of in the middle of the uh, it's in the middle of the middle section where we're kind of in, in omniscient perspective and we take on Arnie's point of view. It is a great sort of cross section, I think of this book and its problems as a whole. And also just like the the experience of reading it. So Mm -hmm. uh, the, as we've said, this chapter is just Filled with detail that has nothing to do with anything. It's Arnie talking with his parents, like sitting in the car with them, like they're going somewhere. And there's all this detail about how his parents are handling his new rebelliousness. And also, what are they going to do for Christmas? Because Christmas time is coming around and and, and so on and so forth. Um, just all this stuff that I do not care about that is not important to what is going on. And yet uh, we get 
the final ending, right, as as Arnie is sort of like half listening to his parents have a conversation, um, they're sort of arguing about it. And then uh, Arnie says, so he's he, these are the thoughts he's having about his parents. This is what he thinks about his father. He's a donkey, Arnie thought. She talks to him like a donkey. She rides him like a donkey and he brays like a donkey. You're smiling again, Regina said. So she's like looked into the back seat and sees Arnie smiling to himself, obviously, as he's thinking these uncharitable thoughts about his parents. And Arnie replies, I was just thinking about how much I love you both, Arnie said. His father looked at him, surprised and touched. There was a soft gleam in his mother's eyes and might that might have been tears. They really believed it. The shitters. Uh, and that's the shitters is like one of LeBay's terms. It's how, you know, LeBay is taking over Arnie because it's what he refers like. It's, it's his term of resentment for everyone in the world. And what I liked about this, uh, what, what struck me about it, it's, it's kind of like what you just said about the ending where I was reading this chapter and I'm like, oh my God, I don't care. I don't care what is going on. And then this, this small little moment where Steve can just, he sinks the shot on having that, you know, going into Arnie's perspective, having Arnie think this stuff, and then like seeing how his interiority can differ from his outward appearance and right and the ways that like LeBay is working into his way of apprehending the world around him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like some of the stuff just, you know, Steve can lock it in mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, my mine is uh, this is it's actually something you alluded to already. It's on one thirty four and one thirty five for me. Uh, by the way, in this in this quotation, you were going to hear the fact that LeBay gives us the theory, you know, the TK theory for the stand, but without any of like the sciencey stuff. <laughs> so think about this. So this is Dennis narrating, and of course there were no curses. Even LeBay's idea of lingering emotions was pretty far fetched. I doubted if he really believed it himself. He had shown me an old scar, and he had used the word vengeance, and that was probably a lot closer to the truth than any phony supernatural bullshit, of course. No, I was 17 years old, bound for college in another year, and I didn't believe in such things as curses and emotions that linger and grow rancid, the spilled milk of dreams. I would not have granted you the power of the past to reach out horrid dead hands toward the living. But I'm a little older now. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's extremely good. That's like seventies King coming back, reaching out of the past. Yeah, no, there, like it, that, and also the ending. You can kind of feel like the, the like the heat from those short stories, like the Night Shift era short stories, uh, coming through. Yeah, I mean, you know, he is the the problem is there's so much bulk here where he he can't be a, a stylist. Mm-hmm. So that, but you know, I, I think this book, and maybe this is something that we should think about, but there's kind of this, like, uh, I don't know, like, Tootsie Roll, like, Stephen King writing, uh-huh. <laughs> where, where it's like, you start at the beginning, it's very thin, and it's pr- it's pretty good. Like, the first 50 pages of any Stephen King novel are pretty good, just across the board. Mm-hmm. He's pretty good at getting the story going. Um, and then you get the, like the Tootsie Roll, right? Where it's like this big hodgepodge of random shit. And then it like tapers off. And like when he nails it down to a point, and if he's able to really do that, it's always really good. Um, you know, even if his endings aren't always great, the style of the ending is often good. And so, 
you know, this novel has a few of those like pinchy points to them where it's like filing things down to like, you know, one final statement about the thing we just talked about. And those are almost, it, th- that's a place where style can really shine through. And I, I, you know, I think that's where the best writing in this book is, is like in those places where he's trying to close off a big thing, a big, you know, a round, impossible thing to get his hands over. When he gets it down to like this little pinch point, it tends to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. What in the Kingiverse is the next segment, and that's the one where we outline connections between this novel and others, whether that's kind of thematic echoing or the repurposing of ideas or sometimes explicit connections and allusions. Uh, we've gone over, I think, a lot of the kind of like stock elements of Stephen King that have shown up here. Uh, the, the first mm-hmm. book completely rebuilt out of Stephen King stock elements. Is there anything that you think we haven't mentioned? Uh, the, the Horlicks, Mm -hmm. uh, so Horlicks is, you know, his, um, uh, uh, Pittsburgh university that showed up in a couple things now, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it showed up in the crate. It showed up in our last book too. I don't remember in what context, but, um, it showed up somewhere in different seasons because I brought it up in the episode. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's, it's interesting that he's spending time in Pittsburgh here and is, and is trying to create this little bit of King of verse here. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if this shows up anywhere else. I can't remember Horlick showing up in later novels. Yeah, I, I don't know if it does, but there is. So one of the, the one of the details that we get about Horlicks, which is where Arnie's parents teach, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. But yes. one specific yeah. detail we get is that uh, there's a there's a sort of minor character who works around Darnell's garage, who after Darnell dies, um, is looking for other types of work. And he may go be a janitor because he's heard that Horlicks is missing a janitor. One of the janitors appears to have just like mm-hmm. run away and skipped town. And of course, in Creepshow, uh, one of the janitors is killed by uh, a monster from the crate. And yeah. that is like that. That I think is the intended illusion here. Right. The person who knows is supposed to be like, aha, that's that's why that janitor. He didn't he didn't miss town. He got killed by the crate monster. Yeah, and that janitor, by the way, uh, not not the uh, the the creep show one, but the janitor who shows up in this novel. I don't know his name. He's just Tom Cullen. Yes, he is. He's Tom Cullen written again. He is he is someone who is like you know um, uh, not not quite like everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. But it's got a heart of gold. Yep, and you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's just Tom Cullen again. <laughs> this is the big one. Uncle's okay. Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Now, normally, this is where we go through and we find all of the songs that have been alluded to in the text and we listen to them and we we give our opinions because Steve loves music and he loves to allude to music. I did something slightly different this time because I did not realize that the way that this book had been printed had changed. When I first read it when I was in high school, actually, no, I think the first time I read this book, I was probably like 12 or 13. Um so in the the I read like a book of the month club edition, right? That was from the year it was published. Uh, and the paperback that I got used has the same thing. All of the chapters have uh, epigrams uh, or rather epigraphs, I think, uh, where there is a quotation from a song. So there are about 50 chapters in this book. Some of the songs get repurposed, like different parts of them are quoted. Uh, but Stephen King uh, quotes like about 50 songs just as the beginning text. So I decided we were going to not do any of the songs that show up in the text because what is this but Steve literally preparing for us a mixtape. 
just giving us one after another. And this is, by the way, um, this kind of strategy of opening each chapter with like a little quote from something uh, is something that we saw in The Long Walk, where each chapter began with a quote from like a game show host. Right. So it's like a series of, of thematic epigraphs. So uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape this time is just all of those songs listed. But Cameron, you had a very surprising thing to tell me about your edition. Yeah, I've got, you know, some sort of reprint. I've ha- I have the uh, new, a fairly new copy. I think I bought this a used bookstore. But so this might not be like the one you would buy. You know, if you went and bought it brand new at a Barnes Noble or something. But this is the gallery books edition. And none of those songs are in it. So the reason for this probably, and this is if you have uh, never looked into publishing or having to publish anything with permissions, you may not know this, uh, you have to pay money when you quote lyrics to a song uh, in, in creative work. And apparently, and this is also, this is so indicative of kind of where things are going for uh, Stephen King and his career. Uh, the, the figure that I found quoted, Stephen King paid $15,000 for the permissions to all of these songs. So to to publish this book in this way with all of these quotations, he had to pay $15,000. And I assume uh, something about the rights agreements uh, meant that those quotes could not be included in subsequent reprints beyond a certain point because the cost became too exorbitant. Uh, I think uh, the the rights often um, are based, like the, the, the cost is often based on how many copies of the book are printed. But okay. That's that's all there. Oh, the other thing, right, to, to that goes along with this. He can drop 15,000 for all these song rights. Uh, it's not too long after this that Stephen King buys his own radio station. <laughs> so <laughs> he's making bank. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, because this is also is the early 80s. This is when the film adaptations start coming in. So like the the amount of money he can make now starts like going way, way. up. Yeah. And the film adaptation of this is Carpenter starts work on the film adaptation uh, before the before the book hits the stands, like both the book mm-hmm. and the film come out in the same year, the rights sold basically immediately. Uh, so, again, that tells you how much the other stuff that I read that's sort of like slightly less important to, to our discussion here or maybe more important. We'll we'll touch on it. But uh, Stephen King, uh, it, it is becoming a point of like discussion within the publishing community the advances that Stephen King is getting to the point that I think for maybe this book or maybe a couple of upcoming books he he only takes one dollar as an advance in order to make people stop talking about the exorbitant advances that Stephen King is getting yeah he's warping the publishing industry at this point mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King becomes a problem mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean quite literally I it, you know we it's not just Stephen King, but Stephen King and his cohort of best-selling writers in the 1980s, they changed the way the publishing industry works um, alongside consolidation that's happening. You know, it's it's kind of, it's it's not just like they are doing it, but transformations that are happening in publishing concurrent with the way that superstar writers are being treated eventually in the 1990s uh, conclude with the destruction of what, what was called the mid-list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you couldn't just be like a solid middle class writer anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were someone who wrote occasionally and, uh, you know, your books were not your predominant income or you were a Stephen King. Um, and it became very, very difficult to be in the middle. Mm-hmm. And it's still very difficult to be in the middle. With that all out of the way, let's work through these 50 songs. 
So we're doing it hyper fast. And also there are like a million other songs that are mentioned in this book that we didn't include because it would take literally an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we're doing this lightning style Mm -hmm. as fast as humanly possible. You ready? You ready, Michael? Let's go. Something Else by Eddie Cochran. Five stars, hell yeah! This is an Eddie Cochran song. I'm I'm uh, Eddie Cochran head, and uh, <laughs> you know we're into this music track. Uh, Yakety Yak by the Coasters. Five stars, absolute classic. Hot Rod Lincoln by Charlie Ryan. One star. This is a comedy song that Rob Zombie would cover. This car of mine by the Beach Boys. One star. This song is only a minute and thirty seconds long. What the hell? Surf City by Jane and Dean. One star. This is just a Beach Boys knockoff. If I wanted to listen to this, I'd listen to the Beach Boys. This is the one. So you might think that these are all oldies songs. This is when that breaks. Party Town by Glenn Frey. Uh, one star. This song is awful. It is. It is garbage. Uh, Roadrunner by Bo Diddley. Three stars. Solid rock song. No Particular Place to Go by Chuck Berry. It is impossible for me to judge this song. This is like asking me to evaluate the color blue or the letter of an alphabet. Because, like, this song is is such an integral part, I think, of, like, American popular culture that I just, I cannot have an opinion on it. You have to rate it with a star rating. We cannot proceed if you don't give it a star rating. Uh, okay, it, it is simultaneously a one star and ten stars. There we go. Okay, good. This is like the rules of review. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you know. Uh, Mercury Blues by Steve Miller Band. One star. This is Steve Miller Band doing a funk song. <laughs> it's not good. Uh, Cadillac Walk by Moon Martin. Uh, two stars. This song sounds weirdly like uh, like placeholder music. There is a later cover of this song. When you look up this song, you don't get Moon Martin's version. You get like a later cover that was more successful by a group called Mink DeVille. Mink DeVille's version of this song rocks, just FYI. Uh, Drive My Car by The Beatles. One star. I preferred when Queen wanted to ride their bicycle. Cadillac Ranch uh, by Bruce Springsteen. Two stars. I like Springsteen. I don't like cars enough to like this song. Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Five stars. This song is awesome. This is like a like a classic of American uh, slightly odd music. Mm. Uh, Maybelline by Chuck Berry. Four stars. Uh, This is close to maybe being my favorite Chuck Berry song, uh, but it's sort of tied with another one that I'm going to have to review later. Less Than Zero by Elvis Costello. Two stars. I preferred the book. <laughs> oh, when's our Brett Easton Ellis podcast start, Cameron? Uh, when we're done with yeah. Steve. Oh, God. It really is funny that Ursula Le Guin or Brett, Brett Easton Ellis are like our, <laughs> like, you know, hot contenders for the next version of the show. <laughs> And Anne Rice. Those are all good. I've gotten a lot of feedback from that episode of people saying Anne Rice is the one they want. Mm, I can see that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Deacon Blues by Steely Dan. Three stars. This is a good Steely Dan song. Not my favorite, but good enough. Little Deuce Coop by the Beach Boys. Three stars. I accept this. Uh, My Mustang Ford by Chuck Berry. Three stars. I also accept this. Mercedes Benz by Janis Joplin, one star. Uh, I can't think of a worse song. I literally can't. Uh, it's, it's awful. <laughs> uh, Shut Down by the Beach Boys, two stars. This song is only one minute and 50 seconds long. Come on, the Beach Boys, try harder. 
No Money Down by Chuck Berry. Two stars. This is just a story song about a car. Like it's talking about buying a car. And if you are interested in hearing that, you can listen to this song. She's in Love with My Car by Moon Martin. Two stars. This also sounds weirdly like background music, just like the last Moon Martin song. Riding in My Car by Woody Guthrie. One star. The chorus is him going. (laughs) (laughs) It's like barely music. Yeah. (laughs) Woody Guthrie, what were you doing? (laughs) This land is your land? (laughs) This is my car? Uh. Racing in the Streets by Bruce Springsteen. Four stars. This is the Springsteen I like. Yeah, hell yeah. Transfusion by Nervous Norvis. This, uh, two stars. This is a comedy song that I actually remember listening to as a child. I had like a, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, like a tape of like comedy songs from the 70s. This probably explains a lot about my sense of humor, mm-hmm. by the way, is that I, I listened to all these like, uh, like almost Borscht Belt style comedy songs from the 70s all the time as a child. Mm-hmm. But, uh, this is another song that Rob Zombie would cover. Uh, Buick 59 by the Medallions. Uh, two stars. It's, it's fine. It's like a sort of, you know, doo wop song. The Magic Bus by The Who. One star. Who? You Can't Catch Me, Chuck Berry. Uh, five stars. Apparently I decided that I like this one more than Maybelline. Uh, Who Do You Love by Bo Diddley. Three stars. Uh, this song is really good, but it has been absolutely wrecked by being on every commercial for a full decade. Huh. Uh, you yeah. know, like from 1998 to 2008. So mm-hmm. uh, that, it's actually hurt it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 409 by the Beach Boys. This song is two minutes long and therefore gets four stars. You did it, Beach Boys. You finally wrote a full song. Ride on Josephine by Bo Diddley. Four stars is a real jam. It is a good song. Uh, Brand new Cadillac by The Clash. Four stars. This is this is good. It's the I mean, it's it's The Clash doing their version of the 50s car song. So it sounds like almost, you know, gothabilly or something. And that's neat. Mexican Blackbird by ZZ Top. One star. I did not know that ZZ Top could make a bad song until I heard this song. So I listened to all of the songs, uh, and I listened to this one, and this one is, like, astonishingly bad. I just want to echo you on that. It, it feels <laughs> like, like a, a half-assembled assembled demo track. Yeah, it's like uh, most ZZ Top songs are just like, do you like listening to electric guitar? Do you like like sex songs? <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And like that, they, like those are never that bad, right? Um, they just sound like ZZ Top songs, but this one is uniquely bad. If I could give it less than one star, I would. But we all know that one star is the lowest you can go. Uh, I Can't Sleep by The Inmates. Uh, one of the true treasures of doing this segment is discovering songs that I haven't heard before that then become part of my stable rotation. This is one of those songs. This song rules. Five stars. Uh, same about the next one. Writing in the Moonlight by Howlin' Wolf Chester Burnett. Five stars. Mm-hmm. This dude's voice is rad. This is like kind of like in that intermediary zone between like blues and rock. Mm-hmm. Um, it is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's like a uh, you should check this out. Check this song out. Riding in the moonlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, my custom machine by the Beach Boys. Three stars. This song is really cool. If you imagine they're singing about their mecca. Mary Lou by Bob Seger. Five stars. I still believe now that Bob Seger cannot make a bad song. Ramrod by Bruce Springsteen. Three stars. From a Buick Six, Bob Dylan didn't listen to it. One star. There is one Bob Dylan song in this entire playlist, and of course I gave it to you. 
Uh, yeah, I'm not going to listen to it. A Young Man Is Gone by the Beach Boys. One star. This song is so boring. Teen Angel by Mark Denning. One star. This is a song for a greaser funeral. Wreck on the Highway by Bruce Springsteen. Three stars. Riders on the Storm, The Doors. Five stars. Uh, Snoop Dogg sampling this and putting it on one of the Need for Speed games makes this the ultimate car song. Uh Dead Man's Curve by Jan and Dean. Uh, three stars. This song is really great on account of how it's like a, a sort of, you know, upbeat harmonic, like, you know, Beach Boys, Jan and Dean style 50s teen song that also ends with them being like, and I'm dead. I died on Dead Man's Curve. <laughs> cool. Yep. <laughs> Last Kiss, Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers. One star. It's the second song for a greaser funeral if they all died in a tragic pileup and you need to fill time. Uh, the final song is actually a poem by Robert Creeley because uh, Steve can't help himself. He has to break the pattern. So his last one is not a song at all. It's the poem I Know a Man uh, by Robert Creeley. Uh, this is a pretty good poem. Four stars. Uh, it, it's kind of a postmodern poem, a little bit indebted to like... Um, E.E. Cummings, uh, but weirdly anticipatory of like text speak in in terms of how it abbreviates a lot of words. So that about ties it up. We are Range Touch. If you like what you hear and you want to support us and help us continue doing this show, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch and help us out financially. If you give us uh, any amount of money, it is certainly appreciated. But at the $5 level, you will gain access to the Just King Things bonus episodes where we talk about uh, a film related in some way uh, and sometimes not at all related in some way to what we've just read uh, last month. We watched Stand By Me and we had a special guest along, Joseph Fink, uh, co-creator of Welcome to Night Vale. And this month, Cameron and I will be discussing John Carpenter's film of Christine. Uh, I think it's all going to be some great stuff to listen to if you if you want to put down for that. Um, you can also find out more about what we do at just rangetouch.com. You'll find all of our shows listed. And if you follow us on Twitter at rangetouch, uh, you'll get updates when we have uh, episodes drop, when we have things in the works, uh, when things post on the Patreon. Uh, for instance, right now, as I'm talking, we have a Let's Play where Cameron, Danny, and I work through the Dark Pictures anthologies uh, Little Hope uh, about a bunch of creative writing students encountering uh, time traveling ghost pilgrims in a pocket dimension. Uh, it's a fun time. Uh, the other things that you can do, of course, uh, is you can just let people know about this show. If you know someone who it might be into Stephen King or is looking for something kind of eerie to, to listen to in the fall, then let them know about Just King Things. You can also review us on your podcast platform of choice, Apple Podcasts or whatever, you know, anything that you can say about us, uh, any ratings you give help surface us in uh, search results and help get eyes on us so we can continue to make all of this wonderful. Uh, wonderful content for you uh, give us five stars five stars do, do it. it do mm -hmm. it thanks <laughs> uh and is there anything else i want to touch on there i don't, I don't think, think so, so. where we read next time Michael? all right uh next time we will be reading a much shorter novel in fact a novella uh 1983's cycle of the werewolf with illustrations by bernie wrightson I'm excited to do that. And then we're, there are film for that will be Silver Bullet. Yes, right? which is the film adaptation of the novella, even though they, they changed the title. 
Well, it's that time, Michael, and uh, I'm out here getting ready to hunt werewolves and uh, hanging out in my haunted car, and I just got one thing to say. I turn on the radio to listen to some tunes, and one horrifying word comes out, just a phrase to chill you to the bone, and it's that, uh, you know, we do it for the world. And also, we do it for Steve. Steve. 